Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals, hosted by Walter Kim, NAE President. Today's conversation is with James Chong, Vice President of Strategy and Innovation for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. The topic, Generational Approaches for Gospel Understanding. Today's conversation is brought to you by Building God's Way. With more than 900 designs for churches and Christian schools across 47 states and three foreign countries, BGW offers an unmatched level of expertise in faith-based architecture, along with a broad network of other kingdom-building services. Through a unique approach developed exclusively for ministry organizations, BGW seeks to transform the design and construction process. Learn more at bgwservices.com. And now, let's join in. I'm Walter Kim, here with James Chong, who serves as Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and was previously InterVarsity's National Director of Evangelism. James has been in campus ministry for over 25 years and just taught a doctoral course on evangelism in post-Christian culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Ordained with the Vineyard Churches, he previously served on the pastoral staff of a Boston area urban church plant, a mega church in Seoul, and a house church in Los Angeles. James is the author of three books, including his latest, Longing for Revival, From Holy Discontent to Breakthrough Faith. I connected with James at a consultation about faith and science and culturally creative presentations of the gospel. I was not only encouraged by what he had to share on evangelism, but I also felt equipped to make a greater impact. And I, I know others will be equipped and encouraged by you too. So thanks for joining us today, James. Uh, honored to be here. All right, so lots of people are familiar with InterVarsity. It's a, it's a vibrant campus ministry whose vision is to see students, faculty, and campuses transformed by Jesus Christ. And I myself, have been a beneficiary. As a grad student, I was deeply involved uh, and encouraged and formed in my own understanding of faith and vocation. And my wife, Tony, uh, was involved both as a student and as staff. So we too have been deeply impacted by InterVarsity. So what's your story, James? What was your introduction to IV and what compelled you to engage with this ministry? Yeah, the the long story short was I did grow up. I grew up in a Christian home. I am a fifth generation spiritual descendant of the Pyongyang revivals. So it, it a very vibrant spirituality was in my home. But I went to college and joined a fraternity and just lost my mind. <laughs> so that first year was um, I wasn't walking with Jesus during that first year. Along the way, however, there were some folks from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It was Korean Christian Fellowship at the time, staffed by Sung Chan Ra. And um, they kept reaching out to me. And um, they were a big part of my coming back to faith and renewing my faith and helping me then seek to uh, reach out to my friends on campus. Uh, so that, through that, just stayed with InterVarsity from my college years and pretty much right after graduation, joined staff within a varsity Christian fellowship. So, so we're here to talk a, a bit about generations. Mm -hmm. How did you come to realize that each generation has a unique approach to how they view the world? Yeah, uh, initially a lot of that conversation happened. So I'm an Xer um, and back when I was uh, 
sort of in college and sort of post-college, there was a lot of talk about post-modernity and Generation X and that shift. So I was interested on that level. Uh, I also have a, in my education, a marketing background. So there's some there. But really the, the deep dive happened during my doctoral studies when I wanted to, I was doing um, a degree to try to learn more about what it means to develop leaders in post-modernity. So post-modern leadership development. And I ran across the work of Strauss and Howe uh, through that, uh, particularly their books, uh, Generations and the Fourth Turning, um, and was introduced to this idea of generational theory. And they sort of unpacked this theory and the differences between generations um, and um, found it useful to say, oh, maybe each generation does have its own unique, um, not only personality or temperament, but its own contribution and calling uh, to the wider culture. And from there, I wondered if there was a spiritual lens to that. And so that's actually where it, it started and trying to figure out if each generation had different spiritual questions, different spiritual motivations, and different contributions uh, in spirituality as well as in wider culture. It seems to have profound and very practical impacts on a whole range of things, like just even at home, family life. How do parents understand mm -hmm. children? And then we think of the family of God, how do various generations relate to one another? And of course, the, the country as a whole, how do we engage with different generations that exist? So let's, uh, let's dive into some specifics here. Lay out a framework for us of the different generations and, and what kinds of questions these different generations are asking. Sure, and particularly around spiritual questions, I, I'm, I'm assuming, yeah. and that's, that's the fascinating thing. So what Strauss and Howe talked about in generational theory as they were looking at American history, um, what they were positing was that there was a four generational cycle that repeated itself through generations. And so um, each, this cycle would happen and it, it said it only skipped once, the cycle only skipped a generation once. And that was after, during the civil war, which was such a traumatic experience for our country. But besides that jump, it's been these four generational cycles, um, what they call the prophet generation, then the nomad, then the hero generation and the artist generation. And in that cycle, what they did back when this book came out in 91 was predict ahead what using the cycle, what these folks would be like. <laughs> and so at that time, the millennials would have been at most about 10 years old, um, eight to 10 years old, and they made predictions about what they would be like as adults. Um, and a lot of that, seemed to pass. It made them uh, some of the most, the foremost experts on millennials. Since then, um, Strauss has passed away. Um, others have taken on sort of the next generational leadership about the next generations. But um, that idea then, I wondered if that had some implications for us uh, in, in the spiritual uh, realm as well. So from that, um, I, I wondered if there was like a, a driving spiritual question of the day for each generation. And so um, the quick going through that without explaining why would be boomers um, born between 46 and 64. What is true? Um, they ask what is true? Um, being one of the last truly modern generations. Um, Xers being the, one of the first postmodern generations asking from 65 to 80, they were born in that range. They ask what is real? Millennials ask, um, though we were born between 81 to 96, what is good? And iGens or Gen Z, um, born about 97 to 2015-ish, that's still being debated. Um, they ask, what is beautiful? So these, 
generations ask, boomers ask what is true, Xers ask what is real, millennials ask what is good, and I just ask what is beautiful. And uh, I think then if you don't answer their front door spiritual question, all those questions are important, but if you don't answer that first front door question, they won't want to hear your answers to the other questions. Wow. There's so much to explore with this framework. You know, mm -hmm. it, it seems like the, all these questions, I mean, they're, they're kinds of questions that a perennial in some ways asked in the broad ways about existence. You know, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Yep. How should we live? But you frame it in a way that there are front door questions, even if the other questions exist for all of us, there are certain front door questions. And um, I, I'd like for you to describe a little bit more what those front door questions mean. Like, what are the implications? What are the generational archetypes that you're talking about? And why that question is particularly important for that generation? Great. Yeah, uh, be glad to. And so, yeah, that's right. And these questions, I had no idea, but um, as I was um, putting these into this into the book where this, this is written, um, my editor said that those are the four questions that are asked in Greek philosophy to figure out what is the essential. And I went, what? So me and Aristotle, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, so no, no, um, I, he is way more brilliant than me. Um, but here we go. So with boomers, right? Um, this is one of the last truly modern generations. They really, um, they're, this is the prophet generation. They really seek this, uh, their, I, their truth, what is true. Either it's an inner truth or at that time, there was such thing as an objective truth, but that's what a spirituality would be centered around is this is true. And so you bank your life around that truth. Um, so for boomers, uh, sharing really, if you were trying to engage people in spiritual conversation uh, for the boomer, right? Like really, if you can sort of say that the Bible that we have is the Bible that was written, that Jesus actually walked on the planet, that he actually died, that he actually rose again. The, the If these things are bedrock truth, right? Uh, then by very by by then extension, all of it's true, and therefore we have to orient our lives around these truths. Uh, they really care about the scriptures. They really care about the Word of God. They can't. They don't understand why these other generations don't study or get into the Word the way they do, because they they really value what is true. And really, um, when the, each generation is younger, they get the cultural. A spotlight in a way of the for the rest of the culture. So that would have been for the boomers around the 60s and 70s. And really a lot of the critique about Christian faith was that it wasn't true, that it was a superstition, that uh, sciences have proven that we don't, this wasn't created by God at all. Evolution isn't, or evolution sort of gives us a, a story of how this might, how we might've come to life without God. Um, and so there was this attack really based on this question, what is true? And uh, so that that really was important to the boomers. But when the Xers came, born again between 65 and 80, they uh, you heard that the truth isn't objective. They've seen how their elders have used truth to really oppress others. And they really cared about the voices of other stories. Uh, they cared about other stories and other voices. Um, and also just, I remember, I, I remember when the Challenger exploded, that was a really one of those flashbulb moments for our culture. Um, I, there were places where you know, Martin Luther King was assassinated. There's a, a lot of things that happened that sort of made people less optimistic about the future and sciences weren't going to get us to where we were going to go, that this vision of this utopia 
sciences weren't going to get us there. And so they, um, and the Generation X sort of grew up in a time when the culture was shifting from G rating to R rating. Their parents were getting, uh, the divorce rates were skyrocketing. The economy wasn't doing well. So getting jobs was difficult. The AIDS pandemic was starting to come on the scene at that time. Um, it, it was a time where all the institutions around them, you know, sort of what boomers took for granted, family and work and things that were stable were all crumbling apart for Xers. So the, they really didn't trust anyone. They were sort of a, a, a generation characterized by mistrust. Um, yeah, we are the, I'm an Xer. We're the best BS detectors on the planet. <laughs> you know, um, anything that smells like marketing or institutionalism or a script, you know, we, we, we can smell that stuff from a mile away. We really value being authentic. And it's so much so that I do think that spiritual question shifted from what is true to what is real. So that uh, you, if you want to talk to me about Christian things, don't give me the arguments for Christian faith of what is true. Um, really, if you could just be honest with me and really be vulnerable with me and sort of let me know what your life is really like, then I'll trust you and have spiritual conversations. Um, and that's really the shift from apologetics to a lot of the like coffee shop ministry, building trust, sharing. We realized we just had, when we had evangelistic outreaches, we had to have speakers who would share vulnerably and then show how Jesus authentically met them in that. And sort of when they had the cultural limelight of the day, 80s and 90s, what was the critique about the Christian faith? Sure, there were still uh, conversations about what is true, but it was a time when the tele-evangelists were really falling from grace. And so, um, you know, your people don't walk their talk. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Um, that was the critique against Christians at the time. Uh, so I think it all is around that question, what is real and what is authentic uh, is sort of under that. Well, when the millennials came, uh, born again between 81 to 96, they sort of went, hey, you guys, you all look like you're navel gazing. Let's go ahead and change the world. They became, they were a pretty optimistic generation, which falls in line with generational theory. Um, they were wanted by their parents. They grew up in parent-centric homes where exers, we were latchkey kids. <laughs> for those of you who know, we came home often to empty homes. Both parents were working, cooked for ourselves, looked out for ourselves. Millennials were cared for and parents wanted to protect them from the, the, the issues that were around them. Um, they also grew up with a lot, with less freedom. So helicopter parents were at this time and uh, their, their after-school activities were more organized. So when they, they got together, they really got together. If Xers community was an end in of themselves, millennials um, got together on teams and they would score together. They would win together. They would produce together. They create together. Um, and so I think that outward focus, which we very much align with the hero archetype in their generation, they asked what is good. You know, it was their generation where American Idol, you can vote for your favorite singer, but also in your vote, you're helping uh, provide mosquito nets uh, in Africa to help stave off the malaria, uh, stave off malaria. There's ways that social marketing sort of contributing to the good rose with them. And uh, I do think they, they're asking what is good. And really then they're wondering how does the Christian faith contribute to good in the world? And if you present to them a gospel, that's just about really the main benefits are what you get when you die, then they're wondering, what does that have to do with now? And how then do we, uh, what does Christian faith have to do with all the stuff that we're seeing? I mean, we're looking around the world. They have access and information to all the trauma and peril that's happening all around us. 
um, they're asking what good does a Christian church or the Christian faith offer today? And if you're not willing to offer anything good, we'd actually like to be a part of the team that would. So they'll just, they'll just go to the next team that's going to want to contribute there. Um, they were pretty like uh, a go get them. You cast vision for changing the world. They were really excited about that. Um, you can see then the, the critique also when they had the cultural limelight. So in the knots, so the 2000s and the teens, they've had the cultural limelight. And um, a lot of the critique of Christianity isn't necessarily around what is true, though that's still there, or what is real, though we have that issue too. It's the critique has been is Christian faith any good? And you've got best selling authors writing stuff like God is not great, right? Uh, there's um, a strong reaction that if people would just be less religious, we wouldn't have terrorism, we would be able to get along, we would have less, in, less uh, intolerance and bigotry, that it, there is this narrative that if you could just turn the religion stuff down, then we could all get along, right? That's a, that's a wild new thought. And that wasn't really true. People didn't think that way up until the knots and, and the teens. Well, as the iGens come, uh, so born between 97 2000, to about 2015-ish or so, depending on when that's going to end, they, um, they're sort of shifted again. They didn't have the same activist mentality. Um, they tend to be in the generational theory. They tend to become experts. They're the expert process people, expert politicians. They also become great at stuff like arts and literature. And um, they just become experts. If, if millennials were doers, then iGens are improvers. And uh, they have access, right? They, they can um, create studio quality movies on their phone. They can create studio quality um, movies, uh, you know, oh, sorry, uh, music on their laptops in their bedroom. Uh, they um, have a level of expertise. They could just find out on YouTube what they need to do. Um, so much so that if you don't really, if you're not trying to get uh, better at some stuff, you're, you're not really trying, right? There's, there's a sense where they seek excellence. They seek what is ideal. Um, you could see it all in the marketing, like men's groomings products, all the, all the ways that you could take care of your beard these days, or tailored shirts that you could get online. Like everything's just up. You go to birthday parties or dinner, go to someone's house for dinner. It's just, you know, birthday parties in the past were like pizza, soda, banners, everyone brings presents. Nowadays, it gets really intense, right? Like a very produced, the invitations are 3D. You know, there's all kinds of expertise that are happening. Um, and they, they do, this is what their generation tends to do. They seek the ideal life. They, they seek what is transcendent. They wanna live their best life possible. They also tend to be more risk averse, more career minded, wanting the practicals to live out that best kind of life. Um, so I think they ask what is beautiful what's worthy of worship, what's worthy of, what's excellent, what's really worth going for. Um, and a corollary to that question, a beautiful society is a just one. So I do think what is just could play out in this generation as well. Um, this generation is very much like the new silent, the silent generation before them. That's the same archetype. And every leader in the civil rights movement came out of the silent generation. So it, it is this place where um, this, this generation tends to really pay attention to justice issues because that's what beautiful relationships and beautiful societies to them looks like. And so they ask what is beautiful and uh, that has an implication then. It's, it's, I do wonder then in the 20s and 30s, if the critique, and maybe even in the end of the teens so far, that Christianity isn't just not good, 
like not contributing good, but wondering if, if it's just ugly, that it's just really not even worth pursuing because it's an ugly form of being human. It's an ugly form of, of being who we're meant to be. And I'm wondering if that critique's gonna start becoming louder and louder as we go on. And so, yeah, uh, what is true, what is real, what is good, what is beautiful? James, you've um, given us some mind-blowing stuff that seems uh, compelling in the ways that you've described uh, these generations and what I see played out in the church and the different kinds of questions that anyone who exists in a multi-generational church will encounter. Um, and why maybe one generation's way of explaining the gospel or preaching or organizing uh, ministry doesn't resonate with a different generation. And there are these mismatches. Or when one generation's thought of reaching out to uh, the secular culture uh, is quite mismatched with the younger generation's uh, approach to that. So you've described a situation where there are all these tensions. Um, I want to get to a very specific issue of sharing our faith. I mean, you've just got done teaching a class on evangelism. And how does all of this impact the way that individuals should talk about the gospel? You've given us some indication in your descriptions, but can you give us a little bit more specifics in the ways that we need to adjust our approach in sharing our faith with these different generations. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, and that's, I was trying to hint to get it at each generation too. So with boomers, back in the day when it was about what is true, and that was the main thing that young folks were asking, the apologetics, right? Lining up uh, either folks like Josh McDowell or readings from C.S. Lewis or, other apologists, um, that was very helpful, right, for them, because it was about trying to get to what is true. But for someone who's asking what is real, you can imagine having a list of books and, and arguments would just turn them off. Because they're actually, they don't want to hear the script, they don't want to hear the company line. They want to hear how this is really connecting with you. So sharing the gospel, then, um, so sharing the gospel with, with Xers really meant sharing a lot about how your life is being impacted in an authentic way by this gospel, right? So really telling stories that you were down and out and you, you're telling stories that really for Xers, if you tell stories that are um, not only self-deprecating, but vulnerable, like stuff that as you share it, it's like, oh, I don't really wanna share this with folks. Um, Extra's really like, oh, you're finally, you're telling me what's really happening with you and sort of sharing then why this gospel, why Jesus dying and, and rising again, how that really matters in your everyday life in a real, not kind of um, neatened up, buttoned down kind of way. Just give me the, the, the raw and the tough stuff with the stuff that's there. That's going to help Exer's. I think sharing a gospel of... Uh, as we participate in Jesus's death and sort of the, the lament, I think a lot of sort of the leadership on for in, in Protestant circles around lament, for, at least for evangelicals, I'm sure Xers are at the lead of helping us do that because it's, it's authentic, it's honest. And 
what does it mean to die with Jesus? And what does it then mean to live in him in a time when it's all this craziness? That's a, a way to really connect with exorcist, not to, to make it neat, hmm. but to make, let it be authentic. Well, with millennials, uh, this, and this really gets to the message of the gospel, um, is the gospel about only, is the gospel only about uh, where we go when we die? Is the gospel truly just fire insurance for us? It is, and it is very important. So I'm not taking that away. Where we go when we die is a very crucial question and important. But for a millennial, it's sort of secondary. They're more asking, how does the Christian faith, um, what is good about it? How does it contribute now? And so recapturing the way Jesus talks about the gospel, that the kingdom of God is here, the ways that that reflects Old Testament shalom and Paul's language is of salvation with uh, that word soterion is uh, saved, delivered, healed, right? It has all of those connotations. Um, and even in Paul's writings, there's a past, present, and future tense to that salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, that sort of capturing a fully, more fully orbed gospel that the cross and the resurrection yes, does pay the penalty of our sins, but also breaks the power of sin and death in our lives and our society, and that the kingdom of God is at hand, that actually God's will can actually exist, and we can hope in the goodness of God in our day, and that we're all then, what Jesus is calling us to do is to do the things he did for the reasons he did them, so that we can be a part of advancing this kingdom of God through the leadership of the spirit. All that will start to sound like good news, that it's not just we're going to wait till we die to get all the blessing. It's actually a place where Jesus is with us now. Um, and what does that mean then for my everyday life and my contributions to the world around me uh, as the way the Lord, the Lord has given me? And so for millennials, that will really help them see God is changing the world. He's asking us to be a part of it. And um, he will provide through his spirit what we need there. And it begins with accepting what he's done on the cross and that he's come back to life. Um, for iGens then, in the what is beautiful, it does make me wonder then, uh, I think in the, for the millennials, the gospel, having a missional component to the gospel was really key to help them see their part in it. I think for the iGens, the, I think the glorification, our theological concept of consummation, where is God taking all of this? I think will be very key for this generation of people up to 25 years old right now to say that actually God is, is in this whole reclamation project right now and is going to make everything right. He's going to put it all the way it's supposed to be. And to say, this is the picture of the future. This is God. God's taking all of this world, all of us in this world to its most excellent end. <laughs> this is the way it's supposed to be. But right now we're living in a world where it's it, it, the way it is, it is not supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, but by painting the picture of where God is taking us and then saying that that's, that's going to happen. <laughs> the, the end has been ordained and this is the way it's going to go. It's just right now we're in the middle of sort of working out all the battles to get here. But that end is where we're going and really focusing on the gospel's impact on why that future, the new heaven and the new earth, why that's actually going to happen because of what Jesus did on the cross and resurrection. That's going to be a huge 
I think connection for iGen to go, oh, God's got this. They're a bit of a risk-averse generation, so they want to know where the experts are taking them. So, well, God's the expert. He knows how all this was designed. He's taking us there. I think a gospel that shows God's in control, that God is moving things to this end, and that he, we're being invited to that, to this most excellent kind of life and world. I do think, uh, another way to put that, eternal life, right? Uh, the, in the Greek, that's literally translated the life of the ages, that what's being offered to iGens is a life that's meant for the ages. And I, I, I think that's, that's gonna be very, very helpful for this new generation as well. And you can hear, that's a different emphasis. I think all of that's scriptural. All of that is biblical, deeply, even more so. And not just trying to cut apart um, an eternal destination so that we can help people know not only what they're saved from, but what they're saved for. In, in campus ministry, um, you're having to tackle this, you know, one generation at a time. And so decades ago, you can focus in on the, what is true and then what is you know, real, what is good now, increasingly what is beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, and so campus ministry has that ability um, to simplify matters. But in church ministry, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, when you have all four generations sitting in the same room, listening to the same sermons, yes. how can churches and pastors reach different people, different generations, but at the same time? <laughs> yes, and that'll require some wisdom as you go forward. But I do think it's possible. Um, and I've seen communities do it. And it, it is really fun to teach this material in multi-generational church settings. Because then they're all like, oh, I finally understand you. Uh, I, I remember I was in a place um, in uh, Fayetteville. So I think north, north part of North Carolina at a Presbyterian church. Very, very multi-generational. And to have them go like, oh, that's why they do this. Or, you know, they're having the epiphanies kind of going off in their heads. It, it is really, it's possible. And there are some things that you'll do that they'll be specific to each generation. There are ways that you'll be doing it from a wider way. So for example, um, if you're preparing a sermon, let's say, there is a way to do it in a way that would hit each, all four generations. Um, I, this is normally what I'll do if I know I'm heading into a generation, into a multi-generational environment is I'm gonna start with a self-deprecating story. Because that the Xers are usually the hardest ones to build trust with. So I'm going to start with them. I'm going to tell some story that's going to make me look really bad. <laughs> All right. Because that builds trust. Um, and, and hopefully also then creates the sense of need of why I might need Jesus as we go on in the sermon. Second, then, in the, so if that's the first five minutes, then when I'm, I'm going, diving into the text, I will definitely, as a good Gordon Conwell alumni, um, I'm going to show that I've done my research. I'm going to talk about the culture of the time. I'm going to go into the text deeply so that the boomers know that I have put in effort to exegete the text well. Right. I come out with the, uh, and my, my professor, my preaching professor, Haddon Robinson, would have been very proud, right? Like, come out with the main idea. What's the main thing? And then share the big idea. I still want to do that work for boomers. And then from that point, spend the good part near the end, um, about 10, five, 10 minutes or so talking about the application of why this, of how, what we should do next and how this contributes to good around us. 
that um, I think instead of assuming the application can happen, like for boomers, you could, you could share truth and a boomer be like, okay, that is truth. That's how now I got to orient my life around that truth. And they'll start coming up with applications for themselves, hopefully, or more than other generations. Millennials, you kind of have to let them know um, and to share from this principle that you're teaching in scripture, what does that mean today? And what are you asking people to do in the next week? And to create a space for them to really process, what does that look like? And you'll offer some options. You may also create a space for them to consider their own options on how they're gonna apply it today. Then for iGens, the last part of the talk is actually post-talk. So you're getting to the point where you're done with your sermon and heading into a, like a response time. And there I'm, I will try to create a, either a prayer, um, listening prayer exercise or some sort of experience where they can be explicitly connecting with God so that they have a sense of transcendence, a, trans a place of beauty or experience that happens after the talk and a way for them to connect with God um, directly. And so I may have something there or I might have something artistic, uh, something visual, like either, uh, yeah, something creative to help the iGens connect with what I'm saying. Um, and that's all, this was kind of the things that we try to do in university too, that I think when we think about the message, we just think about communicating that message. But the, we, we tell our staff, you got to spend the last like a third of your sermon prep time on the response and to really help millennials know what they're doing next and really helping iGens connect with God's spirit so that because uh, the response is crucial for postmodern generations. Right. Uh, yeah, yes. And that could take me down another road. But what people do with your talk after is really going to be critical to younger generations and to help them connect with what you're saying. So that's how I would kind of do a 30 to 40 minute thing. It seems that everything that you just said would apply also in the marketplace. It would apply within the family discussions. Uh, it would apply in talking with our neighbors, uh, some of who will be our own age, maybe fellow parents or developing friendships with you know our neighbor's children or their parents. And, and so um, it appears to me, everything you just said, localized and specified in a sermon actually applies to the ways that we are representatives of Jesus in whatever sphere of life that we may exist. Is, is what I'm saying true? Oh, absolutely. These generations can be considered like their own subcultures in a way. And not everyone, you know, you're not locked in by the date. It's more the characteristic of this generation, which one you more relate to, but they're like their own subcultures, just like an, either an ethnic group or a different culture that you might go to. And so you go in contextually, right? I, I believe it's Acts 9, where, you know, to the Jew, I was a Jew, to the Greek, I was a Greek, to the slave. It, it's, it is that sense of being contextual to each generation. And that's right. If you just come with what's important to you, in a way that doesn't bridge then to the people that you're trying to help get to know, like help them understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So absolutely, it, it, it's a chance for us to understand another layer to understand different folks and to help get to what's important to them as a way to, to get to the bridge to, to the gospel. James, you've given us a lot to think about, and there's a lot more to think about. So um, those of you who are listening, if you're more interested in learning about the intersection of generations and spirituality, you can check out James' second book, Real Life, A Christianity Worth Living Out. 
Our guest on today's conversation has been James Chung. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to you, James. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.